I'm so glad to be part of this group because women are just more democratic. When even when they lead, they listen. I silenced myself. What are you saying about me? If I'm not honest and good to myself, I will speak because that is the only way. Is enough. Is enough. This is Women Emerging. Welcome, welcome, and welcome. It's three days to go till the expedition starts, the first meeting of the 24 women who are on the expedition to find the approach to leadership that resonates with women so that more women say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Three days to go. And with three days to go, it feels like the time to sort of sit back and to simply enjoy the moment. And, and of course, it's the 10th podcast that I've done. Your messages of good luck for the expedition have been coming in, and I love you for every single one of them. Thank you so very, very much. I'll only read one from Paula. Julia, do you realize just how important the expedition is, says Paula? And the answer is yes, we do. More every day, but we're staying chilled, at least for now. So this podcast, this 10th podcast, is simply, it's three women who are on the expedition talking about the leadership learning journey and the ahas, the moments of when they went, aha, aha, aha. I've learned something now. The moments of aha that they'll share with us. The first will be Ruba, who's Syrian. The second will be Erica, who's Chinese. And the third will be Fulawi, who is Nigerian. The truth is that this this episode is almost certain to give you indigestion. I give you a health warning. It is a very, very rich episode. I will make no attempt to summarize what Ruba, Erica and Falawe say, because somehow it would feel wrong. There's too much, there's too rich, and they make their points too beautifully. So if you think you have set aside just over half an hour to listen to this episode, I think you better double it. I suspect you will be listening to it again. So first, Ruba whose childhood gave her the foundations to become a leader. But Ruba didn't really know she was a leader till everyone started calling her a leader. And at that point, I think she realized that she actually had to become a leader. <laughs> but uh, let, me, let me leave it to Ruba to talk this one through. Ruba, am I right that your journey has had some quite momentous moments as a leader? Um, I think my journey as a leader had some momentous moments, yes. The first, I think, turning point in my life was um, the fact that I'm a mistake child. I'm uh, fourth of, uh, of four children, and uh, my parents had decided to get only three kids. And I was born after the Civil War, at a time where my kids, my siblings were already older, and I was the youngest child. So I was always... Uh, given a lot of love, a lot of attention, a lot of belief in me that I could do things and be something when I grew up. And I think uh, this is something that lacks a lot in our societies and communities that uh, girls are brought up to fulfill a certain role in society and they are not encouraged to, to fulfill another. So I think in my opinion, uh, upbringing is one of the major elements in my story that made me, when I faced a situation where I had to be a leader, I already had that background where I, I carried so much love and people believing in me and that I could do something. 
I think one of the major turning points, though, of my leadership journey is, is uh, when I moved outside the region uh, for my studies. Um, and this is because uh, it was at that point that the Syrian revolution had started. It was at that point where I was 22 and I heard about the first 40 Syrian families that moved to Lebanon and became refugees. And I, I, I just knew in my in my heart that I had to do something about this, and I did. And I and I took the car and I started Sawa as a form of an, a small initiative. But never did it occur to me that this is going to be the starting point of my leadership journey. But uh, but but I remember I I then was going back to London to continue my studies, and I was invited to the Parliament uh, to speak about Syria. And I had never done public speaking before, and I had never done anything like that. And I was so scared and afraid about going into parliament as a 22-year-old to talk about politics and to talk about, you know, human rights and refugees. And it was that leap of faith that I had to take because at that moment I realized a lot of men and women in my country are, are dying. And the least I could do was to step up and talk about and talk about what, you know, what they were facing. So I think for me it was it wasn't even a choice. It was a responsibility that I had to be in that role because so many people were doing bigger sacrifices. But what helped me also was that I was outside my context and I wasn't in a place where the place that I grew up, it wasn't uh, in the place where women were expected to act or be a certain way, or maybe women of that country were. But since I was outside of that context, I was operating outside of the norms, the paradigms, the structures that were designed for any leader or any person in that context. I could just be whoever I wanted to be. And I could reinvent and think about my identity differently. And I could uh, reflect daily on what I was going through and reinvent who Riba was as, as a person, as a human, as a leader, as, you know, as a public speaker, as uh, someone who is trying to do something bigger than herself. So I think the ability and the space to reflect on my journey and, and change it and change who I was uh, was definitely one of the biggest silver linings of my of my leadership journey. Uh, but despite all of that, and despite that, Sawa as an organization became an organization, and Sawa almost became even a, a movement of educating people about refugees and uh, reinventing what ownership and agency means for people. It was also a journey for me to discover myself as a leader because I didn't know I was a leader until much later. When people started calling me a leader in my own, uh, in my own, uh, you know, context in my own uh, uh, area of work, and I think this is something that has to do with our womanhood very much. That we are scared to recognize ourselves and hold ourselves to our true value in 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 the environment where we are working. So, you can call it imposter syndrome. You can call it just, uh, you know. Uh, it much something much nicer than that you could call it not imposter syndrome but you could call it humility and you could yeah, say yeah humble yeah, being you, humble yeah you weren't throwing your weight around and 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 in fact if you had been throwing your weight around no one would have followed you exactly probably and i think a lot of people um, were coming to me for advice and even in my own team and i was always thinking who am i to give them this advice you know like uh, uh, who am i to to tell them if what they're doing is right or wrong or if you know how how it could be done differently and then i remember one of my big aha moments during my leadership journey was when one of the first people in my team left the team she had to travel to germany and we had this sort of like, I don't want to call it exit interview, but it was more like an, an open hearted chat about 
what was the key moments in her journey with us as, as an organization, as a team, and as a community. And she told me, Ruba, I expected much more guidance and mentorship from you. And she was a very strong woman and she had a very strong personality. And I always kind of, you know, almost it was not a rivalry, but I almost thought like we were on the same, you know, at par with each other in the team, although I was her manager. And it was at that point that I realized that, okay, this, the, the way I look at myself is not the same as the way people look at me. And maybe it's about time that I step up into the shoes of how, you know, of, of, of where it's, it's about time I start acting in, in accordance to where people really see me, which is in a leadership position. And I think that was a very uh, eye-opener for me. Did that make you more lonely? It definitely made me more lonely to realize I was a leader because, uh, you know, you aren't told what you do right as a leader. You're never told what you do right. And uh, people start putting you on a pedestal somehow. Uh, even your close friends, even your family, your team, your community. And uh, definitely it's a, it's a lonely journey, but uh, it's a very rewarding journey at the same time. And, but, the moment, but you have to start accept, first accept that you are in that journey. And I think that's a big moment for women. Uh, the moment when they accept that, yes, they are a leader. And, uh, and when you accept that, you start you know, developing and learning, you start realizing what you don't want to be as a leader. What are the traits that you don't want to be? When, when you start uh, creating, uh, 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 you know, creating a culture around you and, uh, and you realize that uh, that culture, it's much harder to be inclusive, to be empathetic, to be, you're gonna pay a much bigger price, but this is the kind of leadership you want. And this is the kind of path you want. And you realize also that people look up to you for strength. And, you know, I as we always uh, say, you know, you can't, you can't show your weak parts always. Yes, it's very important to be vulnerable sometimes and to show that you're human. But a lot of times people are looking towards you for strength, for to give them that vision. People are looking at you to, um, you know, to make them believe in themselves, that they are capable. And uh, you realize that one word from you has a lot of power on the people who are around you. And um, it's at this point that, you know, uh, it's, it's scary somehow, not only lonely, it's scary because you start realizing that you do have power on people around you have you had moments when you've been really very frightened uh you know i have i i question myself a lot and um uh, we work in a context where we are working in a war zone we are working in a war context and some of the decisions you make will impact people's lives people's futures people's families and uh, sometimes will also change the course of history for the country you are working on i'm not saying one decision from me will change how things happen in Syria, but it's the addition of all of these small decisions by people like me who will definitely impact the future of our country and our region. And I think when you realize that power that you have, it's very frightening because that increases the responsibility and uh, you realize that people are looking at you for answers. Um, and sometimes you don't have these answers and you have to um, come up with these answers along the way. So I think these are the moments where you feel feel a bit scared or frightened about your leadership uh, position or your leadership journey. Thank you, Ruba. It was an honor to hear your story, to, to hear the aha moments during that, that journey of leadership. Erica's story comes next, and it's a very different story. And 
very much illustrates just the diversity of women who are on the expedition. Erica is a very senior woman in a global financial services firm, and she's based out of Beijing. She talked to me a lot about just how important it is that it is your story, your story, and no one else's. Just how important it is that it's your decisions that define your story, and that when you make those decisions, that you should do so without fearing that the people around you are thinking you're self-limiting, but more that you are absolutely clear that you are self-defining. It's a very, very interesting story and illustrates how hard it is in huge organizations to keep hold of your story, your self-defining story. Erica, why did you use that expression, it's my story, not nobody else's, this is my story? Because you're, you're, your own, you are, you're going to drive your own journey and not somebody else. Somebody else can help you. And so you cannot live in somebody else's uh, kind of uh, profile, expect, uh, expression about yourself because you are the one who writing this journal, a journey, not, not somebody else. Uh, when people say, oh, you are... You've been nominated or you've been put up for this position as a big promotion. You feel honored, of course, but on the same time, you also feel tremendous pressure to really uh, say, have to say yes, because otherwise you say, okay, what, uh, if I say no, if I'm not quite sure what, what I'm supposed to is the message I'm sending to, uh, to the people, my sponsor, right? Uh, am I letting them down? Um, I send a message that I'm not ambitious enough. I'm not aggressive at all. I'm just I want an easy life. So this kind of messaging you're concerned to worry about because um, uh, of that. That's one part. Secondly, is you don't want to you you say you're supposed to let them down. But sometimes, so you have the pressure. You may not really thinking clearly. There's a real danger, I suppose, of you know people wanting you to do it so much, and you. And you just sort of falling into it because you don't want to disappoint anybody. Yeah, that's definitely because you'll find yourself uh, either not ready or not happy or not capable. You gave me a, a fab fabulous list of the, of the questions you ask yourself when someone suggests a new role to you. Let me go through them, if I may, because I'd love to. So the. Your first one you said to me is that you ask yourself, can I do it? And that is because you think competence comes first? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, competency comes first. And also um, you have to have a realistic assessment about your capability and also the job requirement. It won't be 100% a match, of course, but it should be reasonably reconciled. And then you, you said your second question is, do I want the responsibility? What's behind that one? Because in, I think in most of the world, um, sometimes if you're getting higher into the position, um, the, in the same position for men and women take, probably people will using more scrutiny to <laughs> evaluating your performance versus your male peer just because of um, um, just naturally probably sometimes you have to be the, uh, is the natural community bias. 
So you just need to be prepared to getting in front of that kind of scrutiny. Um, and also pe- people, how people look at that. And also because the responsibility um, you are taking on, including some tough decisions to you, you're forced to make, if you're not that kind of person, you um, that are very comfortable making those really tough decisions, then uh, and also thinking about you're responsible for how many people's career future, um, I mean, success of the business, accountability, and also um, a direction of the organization, then I think then that's where you come to the question, say, do I, do I really want that? And sometimes you feel, or oh, maybe it's better off to do a step down a little bit and uh, not step down, just step one step back a little bit and do something more comfortable or uh, not stretch so much. I think that that that's going to be thinking through uh, I, I had and and I suppose that comes to the point of of um it's my not is my story not yours is you know I might want that responsibility but I might not want it now and this is my story not your story <laughs> yeah that's true and I think one um that's definitely the case and also sometimes you also need to draw in line it's not just trying to say not be able to step out of your comfort zone. You have to be able to have the courage to step out of your comfort zone to stretch. But how much far you want to stretch yourself is really a personal judgment. If you find yourself from my situation, if I'm stretched too much, then I, I, I feel like even though people say you should go for that, I would say, wait a second, I want to step back. I, I don't want to go for that because I feel the stretch is too much not only for me personally, career-wise, work-wise, or also talking about the family and other things you want to, you want to thinking along. They are going through the same, the journey with you together. And I suppose that leads into the, the third thing you say is, am I okay with the sacrifices? That makes sense, doesn't it? To, to actually analyze yeah. this and not to pretend that there aren't sacrifices. That's true. Uh, definitely, you have to analyze and uh, think about the sacrifice you can do. You can do because um, I remember. Um, I mean, you potentially one thing you probably easily double your travel time. Uh, uh, travel time is out of town time. So, will you be able to do that? Are you are you uh, are significant others willing to accomplish uh, accommodating that? Is are you able to think about maybe missing your your all the kids' big events, etc. All these things and on different stages of your your career and your family life your personal life you have to evaluate uh is that something of a sacrifice that i will get back later or is something if you miss it a uh, sacrifice you will never get it back um this is also something people think in diff- even different way to, to different situation and scenario and events uh, so that's how they i think they make the, the decisions which leads to your fourth which was i thought a really interesting one is what will i miss that's true. I think one of the things you um moving that is um uh, you still have a passion of your current things. Are you feel fully passionate about the things you are able to take the new things you're going to pick up? I think that's really also a very important element for me to judge every single move of my career move. I feel excited about what I'm going to do, um, even though I have a lot of uncertainty, uh, things I don't know and. Uh, 
but I still feel very excited and passionate, and then you should go for that. Uh, but if you feel very passionate about things I'm doing right now, and then, um, but then if I go into the next one, I feel um, the energy and also the time you're required to do the things right now it could be a further maybe uh, diluted where you have to move on something like you mentioned early, um, something you don't feel very very enjoyable uh, politics and managing people conflict etc then you think about okay is that really worth it uh, do i have to prove my value by just being a, a one one rank higher uh, or i just stay for the current situation which i feel more comfortable more more happy more enjoyable and a more sense of achievement it becomes history and then and then you then your next question you ask yourself is do i have the power base to support me in this new role that's actually very important particularly uh because uh we are running a paper business so you have to have the people who support you to get things done you may not have everybody as your subordinator be on, on your troops and to execute everything every single things you ask them to do but you you will be able to have your decent uh, size of a power base to to get carry out a new initiative to show a result and to show outcome of the initiative. So that's very critical. And then your last one is. Will I accept the trade-offs on my health? Health-wise, if you get into your limit to stretch too much, then you have this mental or and your physical body will react to that pressure. And that stretch, that pressure will be the one that uh, you don't want to go that far. I mean, that, that's really what I mean. And you use a wonderful expression, which, is, which, which interests me a lot as well. It's, it's not about being, these questions are not about being self-limiting. They're about being self-defining. And I suppose what the outside world sees them as self limiting and almost goads you into doing what you shouldn't do because you don't want to appear to be self-limiting and what you're saying is no you've got to define yourself yeah that is absolutely true and also it takes more courage to do, to do self-defining than worry about people thinking you are self-limiting meaning taking more much more courage to say no uh, if not supposed to say yes the courage to say no and to self-define. Yes. Our last leadership story comes from Falawe. Uh, I interviewed Falawe, but um, as you'll see, she rapidly started interviewing me. A few years ago, I met Falawe and she sang me a song called No Man is an Island. Falawe, the first time we met, you sang that song to me. Why? I remember that when we met and I remember like singing that song to you, it, it was very organic, you know, um, where that song came from. And that was a song um, that I learned from the school that I attended, um, part of my primary education in Benin Republic, in Republic of, of Benin, um, where the, you know, the school owner who was also the, um, the head of school, um, Mrs. Edna V. Tunu, um, a Black an African-American who was married to a Togolese, you know, who set up um, these international schools, both in Togo and in, and in Benin Republic. And this school had, you know, such a diverse group of Africans, you know, who, who, were, who were attending the school. And I remember, you know, this song where, you know, she just was saying, no man is an island, but I think the song also just reflected the essence of the school, you know, where, 
you know, when I think about who I become today, the values that, you know, that I continue to shape my life, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, emerged um, from that school. And it was just how she saw potential in every child. Like, you know, you know, children could be naughty and we could be all kinds of, of words, of negative adjectives, but this woman would see value in like the you know, the, 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 the list, you know, in the child who was least expected to have any potential in like the most disruptive child in that school. And she would see some type of talent, you know, and like, I, I would see how, because she would see that and because she was, you know, like so into it, like everybody would sort of like rally around even the most problematic child and what have you. And, you know, I think that that was one of the things that, you know, um, um, that school had. And I, I and also I saw that even with all the different teachers, right, you know, who were in that school. And, you know, when I was sharing the song with you, I, I just felt like in that moment, like I remember the song because she taught us that song, um, you know, that said, no man is an island, no man stands alone. Each man's joy is joy to me. Each man's grief is my own. We need one another. So I must defend each man as my brother. Each man as my friend. And so when I think about it, you know, like the teachers, you know, the staff who worked at the school, you know, her and herself, you know, the parents of the children in the school, like literally everybody sort of like played a role in just like lifting one another up and just supporting each other, you know. And we went to that school, you know, post the, during the regime of the military regime in Nigeria, you know, and it was a time where, you know, growing up as a child, I don't even think that I recognize the support that I needed to have been able to live a full life you know, the support from just emotional support, moral support, like literally having to uproot my life, you know, leave my my existing friends, you know, in the school that I was attending back in Nigeria, and then coming into this community that was just so full of love and support. And that just felt like, you know, family away from my usual home. And I remember, I will never forget you singing it to me. I remember holding my, my camera up so that I could capture it. And, and and whenever I'm miserable, I play that back to myself. Um, and whenever I want to tease you, I play it to other people. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm glad. I'm glad that you captured that moment. And what does leading with love mean? I say that leading with love, Julia, is you know I think it's really just around being almost like being kind, you know, to. To everyone around you like I think that you know in this whole thing of just like relationships and meeting people and working with people I think it's important to acknowledge that you know everyone is you know has some battle and something that they're dealing with like everyone is trying to be better everyone is trying to to give of themselves and it's almost like just having that kindness within you to sort of like you know, operate and, and, and work from a place of knowing that, you know, everyone has some type of battle that they're dealing with. Everyone is dealing with something that you're not aware of. And so have that of the back of your mind as you're engaging with people, be kind to people, respect them and don't be judgmental. And I think 
when I say lead with love, or when I say that I learned leading with love, you know, from Mrs. Tunu, you know, that was how I saw her operate with people from the cleaners, you know, to the security at the school, to the teachers, to the students themselves, right? She, it wasn't just, you know, from a place of this child just wants to be disruptive, you know, just because, you know, they're always like a deeper, you know, have you had breakfast, you know, you know, how did you wake up today? Like there was always that just, you know, intention to, to know how or to know why certain things were happening. And so when I take that back, you know, into just my own life and into how that has shaped how I engage with people, it's really just around, you know, before you engage, like just know that the reason why someone is perhaps acting a certain way could be because of deeper issues that they might be dealing with and that you have no idea of, you know, so just be kinder in your engagement and your relations with people. That's a challenge for me. I'm going to be leading the expedition. And in my usual fashion, I'll be so determined to get there and to, to determine to understand everything and, and the ability to take everybody and recognize there are other things going on in their lives. Sometimes I get quite driven and, and forget all of that. So it's it's not the easiest thing to do, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely, Julia. It is not the easiest thing to do. So if that's one thing that you learned from your head teacher, give me one other thing you've learned. Another great aha moment about leadership for you. I came into leadership without intention, like thinking that I was going to become a leader. But then I almost found myself in a space where I had to lead. And being an introvert who, you know, just always wanted to be by herself and not, you know, really have people who wouldn't, you know, who would be upset with me or at me or who wouldn't quite like me. I always found I ran away from difficult conversations. I, you know, I would rather just like, you know, make sure that everyone was fine and happy. And I think one leadership moment, you know, had to be a quote that I saw and I'm not sure you know, who came up with that quote, but it said, if you want to be liked, you know, you can sell, sell ice creams and, you know, and not be a leader. And I think that for me in that moment just made me realize that, you know, that being a leader doesn't mean that everybody will love you. And being a leader doesn't mean that everybody will be happy with the decisions, you know, that you have to make, but, you know, you have to make the decisions in the best interest of the cause, you know, that you're, you're working towards or that you're fighting for, you know, but you cannot make a decision based on the fact that you want people to like you or you want people to, you know, not get angry and not get upset with you. And I think for me, it was one of the most um, game-changing periods of my life. Like just seeing that quote and just having it at the back of my mind as I went on with, with my leadership journey. Julie, I don't know if that's something that you have you know, also had to, you know, oh, um, grapple with. You know, my father used to say to me, never become a leader if you want a round of applause, because you'll never, you'll never get one. You'll never get a round of applause and you'll just be waiting forever. Just, just become a leader because there's something that has to be achieved and that's important. I'm taking that one and I'm taking notes. I'm putting it down right now. Never become a leader if you want a round of applause. Wow, but that is tough, Julia, you know, because you sort of also want to be acknowledged. Like you also want to, you know, you want to, you want someone to give you a pat on the back and say, you know, you're doing something good and you're doing, you know, but, and so how do you keep going, you know, without 
expecting or, or you know, hoping? Like, how do you do that, Julia? You've been in this, you know, longer than I've been. Well, you see, I've got almost the opposite problem is that if people did give me a round of applause, I'd be embarrassed about it. Not that anybody ever has, but they wouldn't. And 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 also I'm so and I think you and I have this in common. I think I'm so impatient about what I want to do next that I never slow down for long enough that even if there was a round of applause going on, I didn't think I'd hear it because I'd be charging on to the next thing. I could, I totally, totally resonate with that, Julia. And, but I think I heard something, you know, a while just around this, because, you know, I definitely think that I'm the same way, but I heard something recently where it just seemed like you have to stop, you know, like almost slow down, you know, in leadership because of this sort of like impatience and just this sense of urgency around the cause that we're fighting for. And it's like, well, you need to take breaks and you need to slow down and you need to pause, you know, just to sort of take in the good that you're already doing or the impact or the results of what you've already been able to accomplish. And just so that you're, you then like, you know, recharge from that and you push on from that, you know, so I don't know how that sort of like contradicts with, you know, just like, you know, going and, and, and not really slowing down to take in you know, the good or the result of what one is saying. I'm hoping that, gosh, we can explore all of this, like, you know, during the expedition. We will. I think now you're going to see why I am three days before the first meeting quite so chilled. How could I possibly not be chilled with people like Rupert, Erica and Falawe in the team? But I was right, wasn't I? You are going to have to replay this episode and make sure that um, you've got a pen and paper to hand because I think there's so much you want to write down quickly because there's so much learning. There's so many great tips from so such wonderful ahas. So I think I'll leave you with another song written specifically and written and performed specifically for the expedition by Uma. Enjoy it. I'll catch up with you next week. And tell you how it went. Jo chalne lage, chalne lage hai ye raaste. Ham jo chalne lage, chalne lage hai ye raaste. Ha ha ha, manzil se behtar lagne lage hai ye raaste. Oh. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Your voice and perspectives are crucial to the success of the expedition and we would love you to become a partner to Women Emerging. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging group on LinkedIn. Hum jo chalne lage chalne lage hain ye raaste ha 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 manzil se behtar lagne lage hain